On today's episode of the podcast, we speak to Professor Chris Norbury, who is a coordinator of Medical School Admissions at Oxford Medical School. He's also a professor of molecular pathology and the deputy director of preclinical studies at Oxford University. Prof Norbury talks to the unique aspects of applying to and studying at Oxford Medical School. He also speaks to us about his career as a scientist, which has had a significant impact on medical care. So let's get to it. So Professor Norbury, thank you very much for agreeing to chat to us today. One of the questions I ask everyone, it's a bit of an icebreaker, and it's if you were invited, sorry, if you were able to invite any two people to join you for dinner, dead or alive, who would they be and why? Ah, that's a, an interesting one. Well, I'm, I'm a scientist, so I would probably err on the side of science rather than the arts. Um, I think meeting someone like Isaac Newton might be quite an interesting opportunity. Yeah, I bet. Um, sort of tempted to keep it pure science, but but that might be a bit, little bit little bit boring. Um, I don't know. I, if I had to go into the arts, there's a, there's a guy called Brian Eno. I don't know if you've ever come across Brian Eno. No, no. Please tell me more. Uh, so he he was uh, a musician in a band called Roxy Music uh, in the 1970s, and then went on to produce albums with a lot of big names like U2 and, and uh, so on. But but he, he's one of the most sort of rounded individuals I've ever come across. He's an artist and a, and a musician and a sort of philosopher as well. So he'd be quite high up the list, I think. He'd, I think he'd have a lot to say. Uh, but if I, if I were to restrict myself to scientists, I'd probably go back to um, my former mentor, actually, a guy called Paul Nurse, uh, who uh, went on to become uh, pre president of the Royal Society and, and is now currently head of the Crick Institute in London, uh, a big biomedical research, uh, research institute there. And uh, he also would have a lot, a lot of interesting stuff to say as well. And the combination of him with Newton might be quite, quite, uh, quite interesting, I'd I, I guess. Definitely a conversation I'd probably struggle to uh, keep up with. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd, totally, I'd totally be on the wall, but I'd, I'd love to be that fly on the wall. Yeah, definitely. Um, Professor Norbury, can you tell us what your role is at um, Oxford University? Yeah, so it's sort of multifaceted. Um, so I'm, I'm fundamentally a scientist. Um, so my background is in uh, researching the mechanisms that control cell division and gene expression, broadly speaking. And I've, I've had some interests in, in virology as well in the past. Um, so I'm still a scientist and I, I supervise graduate students and, and so on in, in the Dunn School of Pathology in, in Oxford. And so that's part of what I do. And I'm also a university lecturer. So I, I lecture and organize practical classes for the university. And in Oxford, uh, most people in these the sorts of academic posts are also members of colleges. So I'm a member of a college called Queen's College. And there I take care of um, a relatively small group of, of medical students, just six per year, uh, and some biomedical scientists as well. Um, and I, I provide small group teaching for them in the college and do other things in the college. I'm also currently the academic with overall responsibility for admissions to the medical school. Uh, so I guess that's my most relevant, um, the most relevant part of my, my, my job uh, in terms of, of, of this podcast. And uh, in terms of your role of uh, head of admissions, academic admissions to Oxford University and the medical school, what do you think makes Oxford Medical School unique? 
Well, it's one of the so-called traditional medical schools. So there's a, a very strong emphasis on the science that makes medicine work. And you can tell that already from the fact that they, they, they entrust admissions to, to a scientist rather than a clinician. Uh, although a lot of clinicians are, of course, involved in, in the uh, admissions process. Um, but the, the first three years of the course are very science heavy, very little patient contact, although that we have uh, a patient and doctor course that gives students just a, the bare minimum of, of patient contact just to keep their interest levels up. But what we're looking for really, I suppose, is, is um, future doctors who are also interested in uh, the scientific aspects of medicine. Um, so uh, first three years are, are almost pure science, and then years four, five, and six, it's a six-year rather than a five-year course, uh, uh, the, the three uh, years in the second half are, are pure clinical. Um, so that's very different in the way it's organized from, from some uh, medical schools where uh, there's a, a type of learning that involves patient contact, more or less from, from the word go, um, and it's not... Um, not really based on problem-based learning in the way that some courses are. So uh, if you're thinking about applying for medical school, it's, um, I always say that the, the, the single most important question you need to ask yourself if you're thinking about arriving at medical school age 18 is, do I want to be a medical doctor? And that sounds like a, a sort of uh, an obvious point, but it, it's surprising how, how little thought is sometimes given to that, that fundamental question. That's the really important one. Everything else has got to be secondary to that. But this, the, probably the most important secondary question is what type of medical school do I want to go to if the answer to the first question is yes. And, and some people like the idea of, of uh, studying science for three years and then gradually becoming a medical doctor, uh, whereas others uh, are much more interested in, in engaging with patients uh, right the way through the course, uh, in which case uh, the, the type of, of traditional course that we offer is probably not the one that they would go for. That's a really interesting uh, point you bring up about asking yourself whether you want to be a, a medical doctor. Is that a, a common thing that you see in some of your students? They arrive and they're like, and they realise they actually don't want to be doctors. Is that? Well, we try we try to avoid that situation because um, we have a set of selection criteria that we we focus on during the selection process, and uh, perhaps surprisingly, only three of those are, are academic, and the the other eight uh, in the list of eleven criteria are all to do with suitability for medicine. Um, so we really take that aspect seriously. Yes, there's a, there is a sort of academic threshold that you have to uh, be operating at in order to, to make a strong application. But uh, most of the selection criteria are about suitability for medicine. And uh, they, those include things like uh, empathy and ethical awareness, of course, and, and alignment with the values of the NHS constitution. Um, and so, we try to address those criteria during the selection process. And, and what we end up with is, is a very diverse uh, set of students um, who represent all sorts of different interests within this very broad spectrum of, of careers that is medicine. Um, and within that wide variety of, 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 of interests, uh, what they have in common is that they have the potential, in our view, to become really good doctors. So uh, it's not, not an absolutely flawless process, but uh, it is quite striking just how well, after six years, uh, our students seem to be suited to careers in medicine. Um, and uh, by various criteria, they, they, uh, they are uh, reporting to us that they're, they're 
prepare they feel prepared for uh, their first jobs in in um, foundation posts um, by the time they come out of year six so um, we think we're doing something right um, but yeah it's, it's, it's a very subtle process I think there's a, a real recognition amongst people applying to medical schools that Oxford and Cambridge are very different in the way they approach the selection processes in terms of the interviews and things like that what, what, what do you feel are the key differences in the way you're selecting people and your application process at Oxford? Yeah, it is a, a little different from, from some schools. In fact, it's quite different from Cambridge even uh, at Oxford. Um, and the main difference is that we, we shortlist very stringently. Um, we've, we um, aim to shortlist about a quarter of the applicants. In fact, we had so many applicants in the last round that it was about 22% of the applicants that we shortlisted. Um, so we, we pay a great deal of attention to that shortlisting process. And that then allows us to focus our attention at interview on uh, a subset of applicants who we think already have uh, the potential to thrive on our course uh, and, and to, to benefit from, from the course. Um, so that shortlisting process is, is obviously quite crucial to this. And, and uh, we do use an admissions test as part of that shortlisting process. Uh, we use the, the, the BMAT test rather than uh, UCAT. Um, but that's only part of the shortlisting process. We, we also measure prior academic attainment. And for most of our applicants, that will be based on GCSE uh, performance. And we'll relate that to the, uh, the school performance, the average school performance, uh, where the candidate took their GCSE. So candidate who's done really well in comparison to everyone else at their school is going to be given credit for that during the, during the application process. And they'll have a, a higher contextualized GCSE score uh, than somebody who had the same grades, but in a school where pretty much everyone gets those, those high grades. So uh, we don't actually have a separate category of widening participation candidate in the way that some medical schools do. We, we uh, treat every applicant in the same way, but we do apply this rigorous contextualization measure to prior attainment, um, which means that we can, uh, we think, identify candidates who uh, are on a, a, an upward trajectory and are therefore likely to benefit from the sort of course that we, that we offer here. So we use that contextualized measure of GCSE performance and the admissions test to draw up an automatic shortlist. And then we go through all of the other applications and we look at absolutely every aspect of them. Uh, and that's a, a big task. We had over 2000 applications this in the last round and we're only a, a pretty small medical school. Um, so we've got about 150 places on offer. Um, and we, we sifted through all of those uh, applications from candidates who hadn't yet made it onto the shortlist. And we identified another, um, another 40 or so who for a variety of reasons we felt uh, had been disadvantaged by that sort of automatic shortlisting step. Um, and that's for a, for a very wide variety of reasons. They, uh, perhaps candidates with interrupted education uh, or uh, a history of, of illness at some point during their, their, their education and so on. So uh, that gives us a short list of about 425. And then we, um, we interview each of those candidates um, at two different colleges. So one of the other interesting aspects of the, the Oxford system is that we have these uh, undergraduate colleges that sort of sit alongside the university um, 
and 28 of those colleges admit students to study medicine. Um, so the university awards degrees and sets exams and that sort of thing, but the colleges actually uh, are in, in charge of the admissions process. It's a bit, um, a bit convoluted, but it, it seems to work. So each of those shortlisted candidates is, is interviewed at two of those 28 colleges. And if they have applied to a particular college, then that's likely to be one of the two colleges. Uh, if they've just put in an open, app, open application because they don't have a strong view about which college they might like to go to, uh, then they'll be sort of randomly assigned uh, by a computer to two colleges. And so uh, each candidate interviewed at two colleges and, and in years where we're doing those interviews face to face, um, so last year was the first time we'd, we'd done remote interviewing, uh, but in a, in a more normal year, we would, we'd expect to interview each candidate twice at each of those two colleges uh, in person, face to face in Oxford. Um, in the, the most recent round, we were interviewing remotely and, and uh, we tended to use slightly longer interviews so that each candidate was still interviewed at two colleges, but, but generally just one interview per college. Uh, so that's, that's a pretty um, intensive sort of uh, interview um, process and, and, and we're using panel interviews, uh, which means that each candidate will be facing a panel of somewhere between two and four interviewers. There'll be a mixture of clinicians and scientists and they'll, they'll all be asking questions that address those selection criteria. And remember, most of those are to do with suitability for medicine rather than academic criteria, because we reckon by the time somebody's got onto the shortlist, um, they've almost satisfied the academic criteria because there's you know, um, quite a lot of competition for those shortlist places. And, and, and uh, anyone who's good enough to get on the shortlist is already looking pretty good on academic terms. And so the interviews are likely to focus um, to a great extent on those suitability for medicine criteria. So uh, in the last round, I was, I was interviewing with a radiologist and an oncologist and a pharmacologist. Um, and so we had a panel of four and we were, we were firing questions that related to uh, empathy and ethical awareness and, and so on. Um, and that means there's quite a heavy emphasis on the interview process itself. And, and we're, we're, because we're, we're mostly scientists or clinician scientists, we're very focused on um, the use of evidence in, in our processes. And, and so we, we like to use measures that we know um, have some value, some predictive value, uh, for performance on course, for example. And uh, in our sort of latest retrospective analysis, we know that how well people do at interview on average is the best predictor we have of how well they're gonna do on this course. It's better than the interview test, it's better than um, GCSE score and so on. Although those other measures do have some predictive value, which is why we use them, they're not as good as the average interview. Uh, score. So we're, we're measuring something at interview that relates to future performance on the course, and that uh, leaves us feeling that we can we can justify um, placing so much emphasis on the interview process. So it's it's quite hard work for the candidate. Um, we try to make it as as, as stress free as possible. Um, we we do actually have on YouTube on my YouTube channel. You can find a, an, an example interview. Um, which is a very realistic um, version of a, an undergraduate admissions interview. And uh, there are a couple of, of, of other examples out there too. So that there are no trick, no trick questions. Uh, there are no questions that don't relate to the selection criteria. Um, the questions are probably going to be quite hard to anticipate. 
because we change them every year uh, and we, we try to make them the sorts of questions that couldn't be sort of prepared for um, because you know we, we know full well that there are there are some schools that, that help their, their, their students prepare for um, admissions interviews and we we uh, almost treat it as a bit of a game trying to devise interview questions that address the criteria but which we could which we think couldn't be easily guessed by uh, well-resourced schools who are trying to trying to sort of coach their students uh, for admissions purposes so um, it's quite good fun thinking up those questions every year um, and that's the process and the, the output of that interview process is that each college that's involved simply ranks all of the candidates that they've seen uh, in order of preference and at that point the colleges don't know whether the applicant has expressed a preference for their college or some other college oh, wow. uh, the interviewers also don't know um, how well the candidate did in the admissions test so we try to keep the interview as separate as possible from the other aspects of the application and um, the final the very final step of that process involves um, me as admissions coordinator just just unmasking all of the the data so that um, we know which students expressed a preference for which college and uh, there's a lot of swapping of candidates between colleges at that point and that helps us to ensure that um, whichever college candidates might have chosen doesn't have any impact at all on their overall chances of success um, we also use a, a, a computer algorithm to uh, assign the second interview colleges on the basis of the strength of the applications so of the overall strength of the field at each college uh, is uh, the same that's a bit of technical detail but it, it, it does at least give you uh, some insight into the, the the care we take over trying to make the process as as, as fair and and transparent as possible and uh, yeah so so if you're th thinking of applying to other universities you might want to see whether their admissions processes are, are as as, as uh, transparent as that i'm not saying anything about any other medical school um, there are plenty of plenty of good medical schools out there uh, we just think that the process that we have set up here is is one that people can look at and either um, either go for it or not according to how they feel about it it sounds very robust and very very thorough um, a lot of medical schools now are, are turning a, their attention away from personal statements um, is that our students personal statements taken into account in this process so the answer is yes and no so um, for the automatic part of the shortlisting that is based on uh, the, the admissions test performance and contextualized GCSE score um, you'll notice that doesn't involve the personal statement um, for the addition of those extra 40 uh, candidates onto the shortlist uh, the personal statement can be important because it can be uh, somewhere that that a candidate could explain to us why um, for example, they may not have performed quite as well as they expected at GCSE, um, uh, or if there are any other aspects of their application that we need to know about, we can find out from the, the personal statement. So that's one way in which it can be useful. Um, the, the school reference uh, can similarly be, be useful at that stage. And the other way in which we use the, the personal statement is really just as a, as a, as a starting off point for a, a sort of warm up question at interview. Uh, it's very often the case that we'll just use something that the candidate has chosen to mention in their personal statement uh, as the basis for, for a starting question. But uh, in general, we'll, we'll move on quite quickly from that once the candidate is feeling um, at ease and, and, and engaged in the conversation. Okay. Um, 
I just want to ask a little bit about a lot of uh, potential students who are applying to medical school feel that they need to stand out being on sports teams, being captains, having done Duke of Edinburgh, that sort of stuff. How much of an emphasis does the Oxford uh, Medical School admissions process place on those sorts of roles and skills? So I'm, I'm always uh, completely bowled over by how many things our candidates have done, uh, if, if everything is in their personal statement is to be believed, at least, um, which I'm sure it is. Uh, I, you know, it, it's, it's fantastic to see such a wide range of, of interests and, and activities. Uh, in general, we, you know, those are, are things that we can't independently verify and we can't apply any sort of numerical weight to those things. Uh, and we don't have an evidence base that, you know, having been the captain of a sports team predicts performance on our course. And, you know, we're, 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 we're sort of nerdy scientists who are focused on the evidence the whole time. Um, so, so we're not going to quantify those things in a personal statement uh, in any sense. If the candidate can make a case that uh, something they've done relates directly to one of our selection criteria, then uh, that can add a, a bit of marginal weight to, to their, their uh, application. So, you know, if there's something that they've done that demonstrates their capacity for sustained intense hard work, which is one of our selection criteria, uh, then uh, if they can tell us about something of that sort in their personal statement, explain why it demonstrates that, that, that um, aspect of their, their, their application, um, then we'll, we'll take it into account. Um, but I'll come back to the point that, you know, we, we are admitting a very, a very uh, wide range of different people with different interests. And, and, you know, some of them will be really good at sport and that's great, but, but uh, being good at sport isn't necessarily sufficient to, to get, get, get your place. Um, it just happens that some of our students are good at sport and some of them are good at music and some of them have no interest in sport or music, but they're still really good future doctors because of that, you know, the point about it being a very wide spectrum of different careers. It's not a single job. There isn't a single type of applicant we're looking for. Uh, we're looking for people who can demonstra demonstrate uh, qualities that are likely to make them good doctors in some way in some part of medicine in the future. So what advice would you give to someone who's applying to uh, Oxford Medical School? Uh, be sure that you really, you're really ready to, to enter a, a medical degree at the age of 18. That's a big step. Um, if you're not at all convinced of that, if you're not 100% convinced of that, um, then uh, that's likely to, to be apparent when we interview you. Um, because our clinician interviewers will, will sort of get under your skin and try and work out uh, what the basis of your motivation is. And uh, if it's not really deep rooted and you're not really quite ready to commit to a career in medicine, that's absolutely fine. And, and it's sort of expected really. It's quite unusual um, actually for somebody to be totally convinced that they want to be a medical doctor at the age of 17. Um, and, and so uh, that's the, the first big, the first big um, determinant, I think. Um, sorry, I lost the thread of the question. <laughs> what was what was the any advice you give to someone applying to Oxford Medical School? Any advice? Uh, so the 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 first first piece of advice I'm I'm offering is is uh, to think deeply about whether you're ready to commit to a, a career in medicine. If you're not, that's absolutely fine. And there are lots of other interesting things you can do uh, to help yourself to. To, to come to a decision about whether a career in medicine is really for you. 
and uh, you know there are graduate entry courses out there for people who have decided later on in, in their um, academic career that they actually want to be a medical doctor and that's absolutely fine so so think deeply about that beyond that i think the, the secret is to have the confidence to be yourself and that's quite a difficult thing uh, and i think a lot of a lot of prospective candidates mistakenly think that, that they need to pretend to be a medical student when they're putting in an application they, they have a, uh, maybe a, a preconceived idea of what a, a, a medical student or perhaps even an oxford medical student might be like and they perhaps feel that they need to pretend to be that person and that's always really disheartening because um, the, the candidates who do best are the ones who are uh, comfortable enough with their own self to 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 come across as themselves uh, uh, during the interview process or in their personal statement so uh, one of our selection criteria is honesty and uh, we're looking for candidates who uh, have a realistic appraisal of their own strengths and if there are any weaknesses weaknesses uh, and understand understand something about why their their personal characteristics make them suitable for this particular course so being honest with yourself i think is is quite a difficult thing actually um, to, to pull off but but uh, thinking deeply about what your motivation is is part of that and then being able to express your motivation uh, in an on honest way i think is a really valuable um, characteristic of, of our strongest applicants and and that can take many different forms uh, quite often people who are thinking about applying uh, are, are really keen to know, you know what's the secret what's the secret what do i need to do to to distinguish myself from everyone else and and one answer to that question is well you are, you're you're already different from all the other applicants just show us how you're different from other applicants you don't need to to do anything extra to be different from other applicants just explain what it is about your uh, your uh, past experiences and your motivations that uh, makes you suitable for this course and if you can do that in a, in a frank and honest and open way you likely do really well yeah that, that advice has been given by a couple of other people now as well especially when it comes to things around honesty around your weaknesses and your strengths and, and not trying to um pull all over people's eyes and talk about your weakness and turning it into a strength and yeah and being genuine i think and forthright is probably the, the best way to come across in any interview yeah i mean for this particular course we're looking for a certain level of enthusiasm in in science as well um so if you have particular interests in science and that can be pretty much anything uh then be prepared to talk about those and, and explain your enthusiasm for them uh, if you don't have enthusiasms for any part of science then this type of, of traditional course is probably not the one for you actually uh, you might well be a, a good doctor in future but uh, if you if you're not particularly interested in science then uh, you could spend five or six years much more enjoyably on, on a different type of medical course and end up being that other good doctor who just doesn't happen to be particularly interested in the science aspects you could be a very good uh, a very good orthopedic surgeon i think without having uh, too much fascination for, for um, the physics of, of, of NMR spectroscopy or whatever, you know. So, so, so um, just think about what your motivations are and, and, and how your, your enthusiasms and, and the, the bits of, of, of academia that, that you've done well in so far, how they um, 
make you a strong candidate for this particular course that you've applied for. That brings me really nicely onto my next question. I think a lot of other universities um, sell the fact that very early on in their course, they get patient contact, whereas you said very much the opposite, three years, very minimal patient contact. What does the actual Oxford course look like day to day in those three years? So, so uh, in the first five terms, that's the whole of the first year and two thirds of the second year, uh, we do the first part of the Bachelor of Medicine de degree. Um, so that's pretty full on, a lot of factual information, sort of factual overload. Uh, students are quite often struck by the fact that, that a lot of the work is not very difficult in intellectual terms. It, it's not much more difficult than A-level work. It's just the volume of stuff uh, that you have to take on and learn and know uh, that is challenging. Um, and then uh, for the, the end of the second year and the whole of the third year, we, we squeeze in an honours degree in medical sciences. Um, so that's sort of equivalent to intercalation uh, in other courses, uh, but, it, but it's a sort of embedded um, honours degree in medical sciences for us. And that's uh, an opportunity to, to really get engaged in the research uh, that's happening in Oxford. So students, I'm just, at the moment, I'm just in the middle of examining uh, a set of research projects that have been done by third year uh, medics. And uh, the range of things that they've done, even with the, the current COVID restrictions, they've got themselves involved in some amazing projects, some of which are actually uh, related to COVID itself. Um, and, and they've been working in uh, cutting edge research groups uh, and producing their own data uh, that will uh, eventually form parts of publications and so on. So, so that's, that's a, a really uh, big attraction uh, to uh, students the sort of students that we're looking for really who are interested in science of medicine um, and there are some written papers to go along with that research project um, and that takes you to the end of the third year and then we have a, a quick refresher course on um, anatomy to to make people make sure people are up to speed before they start the clinical course in year four and then running through that we have this patient and doctor course which is the only um, patient contact that our students have in the first three years as part of the course um, and that involves pairing up students through their colleges with a, a GP tutor um, and uh, after a sort of brief orientation session the GP will then uh, set up meetings uh, which traditionally would, would be uh, in the patient's own homes uh, where students will go out into the community in pairs and, and meet uh, patients in a way that relates to the, the taught uh, BM course. So when they're learning about cardiovascular disease, they'll go and meet a patient with cardiovascular disease and so on. Um, but that's that's uh, a very limited um, patient contact, uh, just about six times a year, students will go out to meet patients. Um, and that runs through the first couple of years and it's picked up again in, in the clinical course as well. And there's often talk about um, tutorial, a lot of tutorial time and essay writing. Is that the case at Oxford? Yeah, we do stick. We we are sort of sticking with essay writing as as a uh, a way of uh, helping helping us to understand how how well people have processed the information, how how deeply our students understand stuff. Um, so it's a slightly old fashioned way of, of of examining, but it seems to work. Um, so we're holding on to that for the time being, at least. Um, so yeah, the, the 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 BM Bachelor of Medicine exams at the end of the first year and 
two thirds of the way through the second year uh, are partly essay based and the the honors degree in medical sciences is also partly essay based in terms of the exam uh, structure um, so yeah we, we, we think that's it's, it's a good way of distinguishing candidates who really understand the depth of a subject from those who have just sort of gone through the rote learning uh, and know the factual stuff because um, it's quite hard to write write an essay with a beginning a middle and an end if you don't actually understand the topic yeah de definitely um, can I just uh, move the conversation on slightly now to um, widening participation? So you said you don't identify people when they apply to medical school to Oxford uh, as being from widening participation backgrounds. Everyone's treated equally. Um, you have a very unique way of looking at people's grades. How do you support people from widening participation backgrounds once they're at the medical school? So yeah, the, there's there's one aspect of, of our sort of outreach activity that I haven't mentioned yet, which is is uh, something that happens before the application process, uh, and that's a series of, of uh, summer schools uh, called Unique U N I Q. Um, I'm not sure that even stands for anything actually. I think it's, it's just an abbreviation abbreviation of Unique, as far as I can tell. Um, but uh, that's uh, involves uh, again normally residential. Uh, weeks in Oxford um, for students who have been selected on the basis of a variety of, of criteria, um, so postcode, postcode measures of, of disadvantage, uh, uh, school performance measures, um, in other words uh, we give pre precedence to, to candidates from, from schools that don't have a, a strong tradition of uh, sending students into higher education, um, let alone Oxford, um, and uh, there is a, also a sort of minimum GCSE uh, grade qualification to get onto these courses. They're, they're quite highly competitive. It's actually, um, in terms of the raw numbers, it's more difficult to get a place on the, on the unique course than it is to get a place um, to read medicine at Oxford. Uh, so there are lots of people who, who apply for these courses. But uh, if, if you, you satisfy the criteria to get onto one of those courses, uh, you can have uh, access to, um, well, a taste of the undergraduate course and uh, you can meet real uh, live current undergraduates to, to uh, get their view of how the course works um, and there's also some preparation in terms of mock interviews and, and admissions test uh, preparation and so on so so um, if anyone's thinking about applying for uh, medical school in general and oxford in particular uh, I'd, I'd direct them towards the unique um, summer schools uh, which Will be a really good way for, for people uh, if they if they are interested in Oxford to, to uh, confirm that they they really are looking at the right the course that's right for them um, and you know even if not you know uh, if, even if it, the the outcome is that people decide they don't actually want to apply to Oxford at all that's still uh, a positive outcome in in many respects if they've made an informed decision rather than applying to Oxford because somebody else has told them to yeah. uh, so, so that's that's handy. Another uh, another intervention that we we brought in actually actually the clinical medical students organised it themselves this year, uh, which was hugely impressive. Um, so this was uh, pre-interview uh, uh, sessions that, that the clinical students ran, and they targeted those at um, shortlisted candidates who. Uh, again, satisfied various uh, criteria in terms of, of measures of disadvantage uh, and uh, 
relatively relatively poor school performance um, and so uh, they they set up uh, zoom meetings um, with uh, clinical students to to help to explain the interview process and, and uh, relieve any anxiety that candidates might have had uh, about the interview process uh, ahead of ahead of time so we think that was a, a valuable um, intervention as well yeah that's really cool can I ask, does the university offer any financial support from people um, from widening participation backgrounds or any background, in fact? Yeah, so so there's uh, something called the Oxford Oxford Bursary, which um, provides some level of uh, financial assistance um, based on household income. Um, and uh, even students whose household income is uh, it's on a sliding scale, but but even uh, if your household income is is up in the sort of forty forty thousand pounds per year bracket, there's there's some uh, financial assistance um, and substantially more for 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 students whose whose um, household income is less than that. So that's that's one way. Uh, there are various bursaries as well, which which uh, are available. There's a whole section on uh, student finance and student support uh, on the university website. Uh, as you'd expect. Uh, so anyone who's interested in those schemes can, can find all the, the fine detail there. Um, can I ask, so just to round off this section of the interview, who would you recommend the Oxford Medical School course to and who wouldn't you recommend the Oxford Medical School course to? Well, I'd, I'd recommend it to any future medical doctor uh, who is interested in science. Um, and that interest can, can take all sorts of different forms. So uh, we're not looking, as I mentioned earlier, we're not looking for uh, a single particular type of student. Um, we're looking for a, a wide variety of people who uh, enjoy science and want to be doctors. Um, so who, who shouldn't apply? Um, well, uh, it's, it's very hard to exclude anyone really. I mean, I, I, th I think if some, someone's to totally unsuited to a career in medicine, they shouldn't be applying to medical school. Uh, but if, if somebody wants to, to, to become a medical doctor, then they should apply to medical school. And if, you, if you're going to apply to a medical school and you're interested in science, then you should apply uh, or at least consider applying to a, a traditional course uh, such as ours. Um, if, you, if, you want, if, if it's really important to you for some reason uh, to have patient contact uh, from day one, then uh, you should look at other courses uh, rather than our course. Um, if for some reason you're, you're fixated on whole body dissection rather than prosection uh, to learn your anatomy, uh, then you should look at other courses. I never quite understand why, why some students are really fixated on the idea of, of, of um, having a whole cadaver to, to, to dissect. Uh, we we uh, think the anatomy teaching that we provide, which is, is provided by, by surgeons, junior surgeons in general uh, who are using uh, specimens that they themselves have dissected uh, and they've done it really well. Uh, we think people learn better from that, uh, from that uh, approach than they would if they were uh, doing dissection for themselves uh, for the very first time um, on a whole body. So uh, we don't do that. Um, so if for some reason um, the idea of whole body dissection is important to you, then you should apply to, to a course that offers that. Um, but personally, I'd be slightly suspicious of anyone who is really fixated on that as, as, as a feature, <laughs> feature of their undergraduate experience. Yeah, uh, yeah, courses for courses, I guess, 
yeah, yeah i did dissection for six weeks and yeah I, I don't know how much extra value it added on top of pro sections we were using yeah it's, it's interesting can i there is a lot of focus on science at oxford medical school what kind of distribution of career paths are there for your graduates what proportion go into clinical medicine and out of that how many are primary versus secondary care do, do you know and then how many go into pursuing science full-time yeah so, so it's, it's interesting uh, the, the the most recent data i looked at um perhaps surprisingly the the the, the single most popular specialty uh, in in our graduates is is primary care uh and so that's 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 very interesting that's not unusual. I mean, um, we, our, our graduates do all sorts of things. Um, the thing that distinguishes them from perhaps the average medical school graduate is that a higher proportion of them go into academic medicine uh, in one way or another. Uh, some of them um, intercalate a, a PhD um, during the clinical training. Uh, I think a higher proportion of our students do that than in most UK medical schools. Um, but most of those do return to clinical training. Um, and uh, so, so we do have a sort of tradition of, of generating more academic clinicians, uh, clinician scientists than most medical, medical schools. But we also uh, produce people who do all sorts of other things in, in all of the specialties of medicine um, as, as well. So it's just a, a, a sort of shift of a slight, slight shift of emphasis in favor of academic medicine rather than uh, it, it being that we, you know, all of our graduates do one thing. Okay, yeah, and I, I mean, you, you feel like that was reasonably predictable considering the emphasis you put on in the first three years of the course. And um, Professor Norbury, those are most of the questions I want to ask about the um, course and the applications. Can I ask you some questions if that's all right about yourself? Yes, of course, yeah. Can you talk us through your pathway in your career? Yeah, so, so um, I studied biochemistry as an undergraduate. Um, I, I knew I was interested in, in the molecular basis of, of life, I suppose, but I didn't have any clearer ideas than that at that point. It was quite an interesting time to study biochemistry because it was really the early, early years of molecular biology. And so when I when I discovered sort of DNA and RNA and and it was the sort of first early early days of, of molecular cloning, and I thought that was so cool, and I did a re an undergraduate research project, and that was the point where when my sort of scientific career really took off, because uh, I realised this was it was such good fun, and, and and you had this opportunity to 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 find something that uh, that nobody had ever seen before, uh, you know the sequence of a piece of DNA. Uh, or the, the function of a piece of DNA or, or a gene. And, and just having the possibility of, of discovering something that nobody knew uh, before that point is, is, is just such a privilege and, and such good fun. Uh, I mean, I can't, I can't overstress that. Uh, it was really, really good fun. And so I, I asked my, my tutor, you know, where should I, I'm really interested in this molecular biology stuff, you know, what's the best place to go? And uh, he suggested what was at that point known as Imperial Cancer Research Fund. It's now Cancer Research UK, uh, cancer research charity in London. And uh, that, at that time, that was where all of the really hot molecular biology was going on. So I went there and did a PhD uh, in London, uh, worked on a virus uh, and really enjoyed that too. And then had the opportunity to join 
uh, a lab. I, I came very close to going to the US. Actually, I had a place to to to, uh, to do a postdoc in MIT in Boston, wow. um, and then uh, to the great disappointment of my, my future boss, I, I changed my mind and and took a place with um, somebody who'd just taken a job actually in Oxford and worked on cell cycle regulation with with him. So that was Paul Nurse, and that was was yeah. The sort of uh, in many many ways the most exciting period of my career. Uh, we, we were making very basic discoveries about how cells divided, um, and in the years since, you know, it, it's um, not through not through my own personal uh, work. I have to stress, but but uh, the, the the enzymes that we discovered and studied in those days have become targets for new drugs in in cancer, and so it's been really satisfying to see that. That field mature from very very basic science right the way through to new drugs that have an impact in the clinic. Uh, so that's that's in a nutshell my scientific career. Um, but but at some point I realised that I needed some job security, and and you don't really get that in a cancer research charity. Uh, so so I, I I decided I should probably take a, a job in a university. So uh, that's how I got to be where I am now in the in the pathology department in in Oxford, and. Uh, I've since discovered that I really enjoy teaching undergraduates. Um, science science is fun, but but ninety five percent of the time it doesn't generate uh, those those real sort of uh, jackpot moments, those eureka moments. It's really a bit of a grind a lot of the time. Whereas teaching undergraduates is is really satisfying most of the time. So there's a sort of higher hit rate, even even if you never quite, you, you don't quite expect to get that sort of eureka moment uh, in the same way that you do with with laboratory research. So the combination of two is actually really, really good for me, I think. That's really cool. People listening to this might be thinking of medicine and think about other things. What If you could go back in time and give yourself any piece of advice before you started your journey in higher education, what, what would that be? That's a really, really tough one. I, I think I think I would advise myself just to say savor the savor the uh the the high points um and learn to recognize the 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 really sort of uh the really valuable moment, moments and, and uh use use that to to keep you going through the many uh sort of low points in, in a scientific research career where where things aren't working quite as well uh, but no, I wouldn't. I, to be honest, I wouldn't change very much. I think I've been really lucky, and I've, by chance, I've ended up working with people who were really inspiring, and and um, I think a career in in biomedical research uh, still has a lot going for it. I mean, it's fiercely competitive, um, even more so these days than it was when I was a a, a junior scientist. But it still offers uh, great rewards and 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 great sort of individual individual freedom as well there aren't many careers where you can have this this level of personal freedom and decide you know what you're going to do on a day-to-day -day basis um, without somebody breathing down your neck most of the time so yeah I, no regrets actually <laughs> i feel very fortunate professor norbury thank you very much for for today okay well i hope, hope some of it will have been useful and uh yeah it's it's really great to have this opportunity to be involved in the project so that's it for today's episode. I hope it was useful. If you have any questions, please do reach out via Instagram or email. An upcoming episode will be with Sheila 
a medical student at Oxford University who has created a widening participation programme for students hoping to apply to Oxford Medical School. So look out for that one, that should be out in the next couple of weeks.